welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Julian, for being a guest on my podcast. Yeah, glad to be here. For introduction, um, Julian was a guest at my Airbnb not long ago, and yeah. he's also a uh, podcast host. I think the name of your podcast, if I remember right, was Theological Touchpoints. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. Okay. And I listened to a little bit of your podcast, and it, um, I think if I was understanding right, your um, church tradition is um, Mennonite Anabaptist. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, and then and you live in Indiana. And what do you do in yes. Indiana? Uh, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been here since 2016. I grew up in northern Indiana and uh, got married in 2017. I've lived here. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm still getting over a cold. My, my voice is a little rough. Um, and so I run a small business doing information technology type work, um, but that's gotten me into a lot of different things. Basically, I, I help businesses do what they do better. So that includes some marketing, some software, some photography, some prototyping, a lot of different things. Um, and then I do some woodworking as well. So it's kind of a, a mix of things. I work from home. Okay. Um, so as far as my normal employment, that's what that looks like. And then I'm involved in a couple ministries here. Um, in the church, which is called Truth and Grace Mennonite Church, I currently uh, help teach the adult Sunday school, which is done in a collective kind of a lecture format. Um, so usually it's about 45 minutes on Sunday morning. Uh, and so I'm one of the three main teachers, four main teachers for that. And, um, and then there's a counseling center in town. Uh, biblical counseling that I'm involved in called the Anabaptist Discipleship Center. And uh, that started in 2020. Actually, the the catalyst for that was there's a Methodist church here in town that was mostly just older members. Um, I think the youngest member was in his 60s, and there were only five of them there anymore. And then when COVID happened and they stopped meeting, that kind of shut them down. And, uh, so they had a building that they wanted something done with and they didn't want to see it turn into an auction barn because that's happened to other churches around here. And so they got in touch with us and asked if we would be interested. And, uh, and so we, we ended up buying the building from them and started a counseling center there doing biblical counseling. Um, since then I've gotten the house just beside it used to be the, the parsonage and we use that for short-term, uh, housing. Um, and that was actually what got me. That's why I ended up at your Airbnb because we were out in Missouri doing a seminar on counseling, basically the, the basic principles of biblical counseling and, uh, needed a place to stay on our way back. We didn't get out of there until about four 30 on Saturday afternoon. If we had run all the way home, it'd have been probably two o'clock before we got back. So we stopped over in St. Louis and, uh, walked in there and started looking at your bookshelf and thought to myself, this is a guy I think I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. <laughs> uh, we were in a hurry though. Um, 
to get back home. So didn't have time to actually connect, even though you're just a couple houses down there. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing, the other ministry I'd be involved in is called the Sword and Trumpet. Um, it's a conservative Anabaptist organization, um, goes back almost 100 years, um, was started in the 1920s by a man called George Brunk. Um, then when he died, it sat dormant for a few years, and then his son picked it up and was involved in producing that from the 30s until the 90s. Uh, he passed it on to a man by the name of Paul Emerson, who's been editing since. Um, and I came on as assistant editor about two years ago. Um, and so under that is, it's a monthly publication, uh, about 40 pages. We've got about 2,600 subscribers, um, mostly in the conservative Anabaptist sphere. Um, and for that, I help edit and I write an article. I have a column there called Theological Touchpoints, which is uh, taking theological concepts and trying to explain them in accessible language. Um, our, our people don't do very well with being familiar with theological concepts. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to present those things in a way that is uh, easy to understand and get a hold of. Um, and then alongside that is the podcast, which is very much with the same focus and the same goal is to uh, to talk about important theological issues and do it in a way that is easy to understand and easy to follow for kind of the, the layman um, and and keep it on that level for the most part. So, so you mentioned like yeah, your people, are you talking about like the Anabaptist community? Is that yeah. what you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. And is Anabaptist the name of it? It's not a name of a denomination, is it? Or no, is it more like no, just a it's, group of denominations? Or It's kind of a broad term. Uh, I mean, it would go back to the time of the Reformation. And uh, actually, the Anabaptist, I mean, it depends how you trace the history. It goes back beyond the Reformation. But um, the short story is when Luther and Zwingli started... Uh, what's known as the Reformation or were involved in what's known as the Reformation. Um, there were others who went with them for a time. Uh, if you read Luther early on, he was very much for a pure church. Um, and then as the Reformation developed, um, understandably, he didn't want to be martyred. And so he found a way, at least, you know, I, I think there's a lot to learn from Luther. So I'm not, not attacking his character at all, but um found a way to operate within the current state church system um, and didn't make a clean break with it. And the Anabaptists were, and they've been called the radical reformers. Um, we've also been called the, the stepchildren, the reformers stepchildren. There's actually a book by that name uh, that was written, I think in the seventies by Leonard Verdun, I think is his name. Um, and, Basically, the basic premise of early Anabaptism is we ought to be Biblicists the whole way through. Um, and so if, if God calls us to do something in Scripture, we need to be faithful to that. Um, coming out of that would have been um, some of the first Anabaptists would have baptized each other. Um, 
And that's actually what the Anabaptist literally means rebaptizer. And Mm. they became known for, as contrasted with the Catholic system and also the Protestant system on the main early on would have still been uh, infant baptizers. And, um, and so these, the the early Anabaptists would have been baptized in the church, in the state church. um, But they came to understand through studying scripture that, uh, we are to believe and be baptized. And obviously belief is impossible for an infant. Um, and upon understanding that they came to the belief that they ought to be baptized as believers. And, uh, and so that was the move there and Anabaptist church, um, which originated from several different places, but with the same basic principle of being, being Bible-minded, um, not Bible and tradition, just Scripture alone. I, I've said uh, the Anabaptists took the sola scriptura principle to its logical end um, in being in trying to be biblical the whole way through. I think there's a lot of similarities there with uh, Baptist tradition as well. Um, just different. If I understand my history correctly, the Baptist tradition, the Baptist. A movement would have started with very similar circumstances, but in England instead of in Germany. Um, okay. And and so out of that came a number of different movements. The Amish would be in that heritage. They split off early on, uh, a man by the name of Jacob Amon. Um, and then there was also a man early on by the name of Menno Simons, who um, managed to not get martyred as quickly as many of the others did. And so he had more time to write things down. Uh, it's one of the reasons why he stands out because a lot of the other leaders, um, because they were baptizing, it was a break with the state church. It was a break with tradition. And many of them were martyred for that. Um, and, uh, Menno Simons managed to, uh, escape martyrdom and actually died of natural causes. Um, and because of that, he had done a lot more writing and, so his uh, his views on things are much more well known than most of the others, simply because they're written down. So the Mennonite tradition would be in that tradition of um, basic agreement with the things that Menno would have believed and taught. Okay, and uh, what are some of the distinctives of that um, contrasted with like more just traditional? Christianity that most people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we would probably call evangelicalism. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> maybe one more thing in terms of thinking about the Mennonite tradition. Um, so when I talked about kind of the birth of the movement um, about a hundred years ago, around the same time as a sword and trumpet would have started Um until that point, the Mennonites were primarily Bible people. Um, now, because of persecution, they tended toward being the quiet in the land, hard workers, um, you know, easy to get along with, uh, very community focused, community driven. Um, but then in the in the early 1900s, um, probably following maybe 20, 30 years after um, some of the liberalization that was happening in evangelicalism and things that uh, 
Jay Gresham Machen would have had in view with writing Christianity and liberalism, that same kind of movement hit the Anabaptists as well. Um, mm. And because of that, today there is, if you hear Anabaptists in any public sphere, typically it's associated with that more liberal uh, liberal wing of Anabaptism or Mennonitism, um, which in our view has departed from being Biblicists. And so as of late, um, <clears throat> embracing, uh, embracing homosexuality and embracing transgenderism and calling them you know, legitimate practices, which obviously we need to be kind and loving toward people who are struggling with those kinds of, of uh, attractions. Um, but the Bible's pretty clear that, uh, that that's not how Christians are to live. That's not how God created us to live. Um, and so, if your listeners are acquainted with that at all, with Anabaptism, Anabaptism at all, um, they're probably more likely to be acquainted with the kind of liberal segment, which is not necessarily where we stand. Um, yeah, we make an effort to be uh, to be biblical or have biblical rationale for everything we do. Um, so, go ahead. But you know, as far as that, I want to get back to your question then. Okay, but as far as the liberalism goes, um, what's more interesting to me to is more of you know how it affects the essentials, such as you know the resurrection of Jesus, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, is it you know that that break in the early 1900s, you know, that split between liberalism and more you know biblical? Um, did it deal with, was that what it was about? Like, um, I, I, I recently talked with a PC USA pastor mm-hmm. and, um, asked him about, you know, these things. And his impression was, um, that they just give room for different viewpoints. Like, um, as far as the, uh, resurrection of Jesus, um, the literal bodily resurrection, he, um, believe that, but it almost seemed like it wasn't so much because he had come to the conclusion it was objectively true, but more like he just needed that for his mm-hmm. peace and his faith, mm-hmm. you know. And, and if somebody else needs something else, then that should be. Right. Like We but, should be willing to accept that. Right. And um, as far as the creeds go, um, like the Apostles' Creed and, the, uh, you know, so forth, he... Um, he wasn't, you know, like it was didn't seem important to him for um, everybody in his congregation to hold to the beliefs, um, to the creeds. But it, he thought, as a body, they held to him because this person holds this part, this person might hold to this part, you know. So, but it seemed like it was just a real openness about what seemed to make sense to the individual. Mm -hmm. And is that kind of the same type of um, liberalism that you're referring to? That's, um, you know, and I was kind of surprised that it was, because when I think of liberalism, I think of it as early 1900s or around the turn of the century there. Mm -hmm. I don't think of it as something that's going on today, today, you know, but ever, you know, it it is happening today. It looks a little different. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but is that kind of like what you're referring to as far as liberalism? 
I think so. Um, I, mean, I think that's generally what's going on. I can I can speak of that in terms of what's happening right now. Um, the organization called uh, BMA Biblical Mennonite Alliance currently is in the middle of a of a controversy over hell. Uh, there are some that want to. It's actually uh, this coming weekend. I think is what we call Ministers Enrichment Weekend, which is a gathering of the the ministers from the different churches, and they're going to be talking about this very issue. Um, I've done some writing on it in the past, about a year ago, um, wrote a longer article on hell, but basically it's the, the idea of conditional immortality, if that's familiar to you at all. Um, it's kind of a offshoot of annihilationism. Um, but with that comes kind of a cluster of ideas, um, that are all being questioned, but I would say the root of the issue is along the lines of what you're talking about, um, in terms of whether or not the truth is objectively defined and can be objectively known, or if we need to just leave space. And that really is the crux of the issue in our organization is uh, it's not so much that there, there are some who would like to leave room for other ideas on hell and don't want to draw a hard line. Um, and that's really the, the center of the issue. It's not so much people who, believe conditional immortality, which is basically that immortality is granted on the basis of faith conditionally. So those who believe have eternal life, those who do not are destroyed or don't have eternal life. So it's a a rejection of hell as eternal conscious torment, which is a difficult doctrine, but does seem to be taught in scripture. Um, But the question is, is doctrine worth defining? Is doctrine worth dividing over? And on the one hand is... Is which is where I would find myself, um, that God has defined it for us and we don't get to redefine it. Uh, we need to be careful that we are studying scripture to understand the truth correctly, but uh, we don't have the freedom to define truth in our terms if God has already defined it for us. Um, whereas the liberal side would be more along the lines of, you may feel that's what God teaches, but if I feel something else, then I should be free to believe that. Um and we understand there's a certain amount of that that is true, that we need to be willing to be um, patient and understanding of those who have a different understanding of Scripture, if they are indeed trying to understand Scripture. Um, what's happening right now is more or less a wholesale rejection of the clear teaching of Scripture, um, though it wouldn't be styled as that. So you have on the liberalized side um, the idea that you know, they're okay with us believing what we believe. They just don't think we should expect other people to agree with us. Um, and again, if it's a matter of personal opinion, then they're absolutely right. But if it's a matter of what scripture says, then there really isn't room for negotiation. Um, Are there, I don't know if um, that answers your question or not. But go ahead. Yeah, it does. Are there matters, are there essentials that, um, you know, define what it is to be a Christian? Whereas like if someone weren't holding to those essentials, they, you know, really couldn't even call themselves a Christian. Um, and, and then other things that could just be, you know, you know, differences and so forth. Um, and if so, what are, um, you know, those like basic type of things. Whereas, um, so like someone like the pastor friend I was referring to, um, 
you know, he, he really wants to give room for people to believe what just makes sense to them. So, um, is there something legit about that as far as it doesn't cross into the essentials of mm-hmm. the Christianity? And if so, what are those just, you know, bare essentials that just have to be held in order for it to continue to really be Christianity? Mm-hmm. Well, the fundamentalist movement would have been an attempt to define those essentials. Um, and they got some things right. I think there were some things they probably missed because they were dealing with the present issues. Um, the, I think everybody, at least within Christian spheres uh, across the spectrum, would have a line where they would say beyond that is no longer Christianity. Um, you know, even if it's at the point of d- denying the existence of God, um, anybody who calls himself a Christian, I think, would have to say that if you deny that God exists, Christianity is nothing. Um, now, they may want to allow even that as legitimate, but everybody has a line where they say, well, at this point, you're no longer, uh, you're no longer with us. Um, and so the categories of primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines have been used. I think most people operate with those kinds of categories functionally, even if they don't have them well-defined. Um, but it's a matter of what you put in the different categories. Um, so I think of a couple that scripture gives for us as absolutes. Um, John says in first John, if anyone denies that Jesus has come from, uh, has been sent by God, I was going to look it up and I can't remember it exactly, but, um, basically to deny Christ's deity and actually in the bigger argument of first John to deny Christ's deity or to deny his humanity is in fact to deny Christ and to reject the gospel. Uh, so that's a category that scripture gives for us. That's a primary doctrine that if you reject the, the deity of Christ or reject the humanity of Christ, you no longer have biblical Christianity. Um, Paul would say in Galatians that if anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, let him be accursed um, and goes on to define that as a gospel as uh, justification by grace through faith and for the Judaizers to add circumcision as a necessary thing for salvation is actually for them to have a different gospel. Um, and so to, to add works into grace, that's an essential. Um, so usually primary doctrines have been defined as those, which if you deny, you're no longer a Christian. Um, secondary doctrines would be uh, maybe things that would be different between organizations or between uh, church traditions <clears throat> that are significant enough that you can't do church together, but aren't so significant that you have to say, I don't believe you're a Christian. Um, an example I would think of for that, um, so Anabaptists would be believers, baptism, for believers, baptism, um, <clears throat> Presbyterians would still practice infant baptism. Um, there are Presbyterians that I would believe are true believers, even though I disagree with their practice of baptism. Um, those who are more Bible-minded would say that um, the infant baptism is not a sign of salvation. It's a sign of the covenant. And, uh, and so they have kind of a different idea of what baptism even is than we would. Um, 
so that's one where you know I I couldn't go to a Presbyterian church. I couldn't be a member there, but I'm willing to say you know, I I think you are still Christians because on the essentials we agree. And then the tertiary doctrines would be, you know, maybe differences between people in a congregation where you can still fellowship together, still worship together, but have some different ideas on uh, maybe eschatology, pre-mill versus all-mill, or um, you know, some of those where scripture isn't sufficiently clear enough for us to say, outside of this, you're no longer Christian. Um, and that's where we're called to have grace. So Romans 14, you know, bear with the weaker ones and so forth. Where would like uh, a biblical doctor understanding of hell fall in there? Um, you know, what category would you put that in? Yeah, well, that's that's exactly the issue. Where I would put that as a primary doctrine, and those on the other side would say uh, secondary or tertiary doctrine. Um, and I'm helped in thinking about the issue of hell um, by church history because the church tradition. There have been those, and those who are on the other side of this would cite a number of people who have questioned um, whether or not the Bible teaches hell as eternal. Um, but on the main, the church has always come down on the side of, you know, the Bible teaches that hell is eternal and it's conscious. Um, and it's a judgment for sin. Um, it's justice in that sense. It's not God having a bad day or being cruel for the fun of it. Um, but it's it's what justice looks like for sin against a holy God. Um, and so the church has typically said that there's not really room for other, uh, for views such as annihilationism or universalism, um, not always, but on the main. And so I would tend to, on the basis of that, I'm more inclined to agree with church tradition than to stand outside of that. And I do think it's taught clearly in scripture, um, I think the bigger issue is whether or not we are truly submitting to the authority of Scripture. And that doesn't mean everybody's going to agree with my interpretation of Scripture. Um, but it seems to me like what's happening with conditional immortality in our own movement is that they are coming to Scripture, having an idea, they're trying to fit into it, doing what's called uh, eisegesis instead of exegesis, and imposing an idea on Scripture. And they can find texts that seem to agree with their view, but don't seem to be the natural reading of the text um, and don't harmonize other scriptures. So I would be of the opinion it's a primary doctrine, uh, but that is a bit of the the disagreement between where I am and some of the those who want a little bit more room. Yeah, so I can see um, the problem with, um, you know, people who disagree with what seems to be clear, you know, clearly what the Bible says. But I kind of think of, um, like, when I think of the essentials, I don't necessarily, of what makes a Christian a Christian, I don't necessarily think of it as, um, you know, just uh, how well they are aligned to the Bible as a whole, but more of how aligned are they to having the correct God and the correct view of salvation. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, perhaps... You know, they're just super ignorant of the Bible. You know, they just, you know, someone came along with them. I mean, just came up to them recently and shared with them about how um, Jesus, um, the Son of God, came and died for sinners and that they can be forgiven of all of their guilt and that um, this Jesus is the Lord 
uh, and ruler of um, the kingdom of God, and they can be a part of it. And um, so they would kind of know um, the gospel according to like 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul puts it, and mm-hmm. they would mm-hmm. know, well, who is this God? It's the, um, but they wouldn't know anything, you know, else about all of these other matters. Um, so I'm, so I, I guess my personality is more ecumenical where, you know, I think, well, what are the basics? You know, it's like, who's God? What is biblical salvation? You know, and I kind of think along lines of the early ecumenical creeds, like the apostles creed and and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I think, well, historically, you know, that's, um, Orthodox Christianity. So you have to have those essential things. But um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. So I I think I agree with what you're saying. And I'm glad you brought that up because I may be communicating something I don't intend to. Um, And that is a a couple of things that I would say with that. The one is um, the only qualification scripture ever gives for salvation is believing in Christ. Um, If we believe, we will be saved. Um, I just finished doing a podcast on that, actually justified by faith and, uh, and, uh, discussing that came out yesterday morning. Um, so there's a basic confession. Um, I would understand faith as being, uh, you know, trusting in Christ, but also submitting to him, um, and, and not as submission as an act that then, you know, accomplishes or qualifies us for salvation, um, but as you know, full surrender to Christ and allowing him. So then as that walks out, it's a question of how does Christ lead his people? He leads his people in his word and in and through his word. And we want to be submitting to that. Um, I, I would not say that hell is the defining article of true Christianity. Um, and so as we think about this, the other thing that I, that came to my mind as I was listening to you, um, and again, I do think you're on the right track with what you're saying there. At least I would generally agree with you as much as I understand it. Um, that Paul in second, I think in second Thessalonians, um, urges us to be patient with those who are, um, you know, still coming to an understanding of the truth. Um, and also the end of Jude, um, he, he speaks of some save with fear but in others, be patient, be compassionate, be kind. And so how we interact with people does depend on where they are as Christians. And so a new Christian, as you're describing, or one who's still developing, I'm not going to come down on him and say, well, you've got a wrong idea of hell, so you're not a Christian. Um, but it is a question of when you come face to face with the doctrine in Scripture and you decide, you purpose to uh, reject what it is scripture teaches. Um, and so whether or not that's true, <clears throat> excuse me, whether or not that's true of hell, <clears throat> um, in the case of whether or not that's clearly taught in scripture, uh, it, clearly enough taught that that's a defining issue. There are other issues that would be that way. And the principle still applies that if you come face to face with scripture and you believe it teaches something and you choose to reject it, you are in fact rejecting Christ um, because this is the word of Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. And you know, that, that principle could be shown. So again, it's not that perfect conformity to scripture is, is the 
test of a Christian, but somebody who sets himself against what it is Christ clearly teaches um, in and through his word, seems to be setting himself against Christ himself and is in a dangerous place. That, that's how I would tend to look at that. And so um, by all means, somebody who's developing to hit them over the head with the truth uh, and say, you know, you're foolish for believing that. that that's not helpful, nor is it loving. Um, but there are mm-hmm. others, Jude says, that you say with fear. And you say, if you keep going the way you're going, you are going to cut yourself off from Christ. And uh, mm-hmm. it's a dangerous place to be. So, Right. So it's not so much having the correct doctrine as um, <clears throat> having um, obedience you know, works that show that your faith is mm-hmm. genuine faith, perhaps mm-hmm. that's maybe more, maybe more of the issue. That's how I would look at it. Hopefully that's, that's helpful in thinking about that. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, well, how did you get started in Christianity? Yeah. Good question. Um, I was born in Northern Indiana. Um, I am the fifth of six. I have three older brothers an older sister and a younger sister. Um, Grew up in a Mennonite church. Uh, the church I was part of for the first couple years of my life, which I have no memory of, would have come out of the Amish, um, but would have been a conservative Mennonite church. Um, and then there was a church that started soon after that, um, that my parents joined, that I was a part of my whole life growing up. Um, and the pastor there, Todd Neuschwander, is... Um, has a very good grasp of the gospel and is gifted in preaching it clearly. And, uh, and so I was gifted with a good understanding of the gospel, um, in its basic form growing up. Um, my parents both loved the Lord and loved his word. Um, I, I didn't realize until a couple of years ago, I was writing on scripture and, uh, the inerrancy of scripture. I spent about five years working through different, doctrines of scripture, uh, in my column in the sword and trumpet, um, looking at inspiration, authority, sufficiency. Um, but particularly with inerrancy and interacting with the writings of people who aren't able to trust the Bible and don't feel it's trustworthy. Um, I realized that that was something I'd never dealt with. For my parents, it was always assumed that the Bible is the word of God. And if God says it, we ought to believe it. And, uh, I appreciate that more and more as I get older, that it's just a basic reflex that uh, if the Bible says it, then I'm, I'm to believe it. Um, I would have made a profession of faith around 12. And as well as I know myself, I would say that's when God began working in me. Uh, there were definitely seasons of struggle after that with sin and sometimes total defeat. Um, when I was... 17, 18, 19, I came down here to Elnora where I live. There's a Bible school here, Bible college that I was at for several years. And that was very helpful for me in understanding some of the basic doctrines of the gospel better. Um, And a man who started uh, helping me work through some of these things, uh, both what I believed and also dealing with sin in my own life, Um, Paul Emerson, who's the editor of Sword and Trumpet, who I work with, And he's also involved in the counseling center. So I work with him quite a bit and he's been very influential in my life. Um, But I would say that was when the gospel began to click for me. And when um, I first began to experience rest 
in Christ <clears throat> in a way I hadn't before. Um, and uh, this thing of, I, I think the Bible school thing is something that's kind of unique to our people. We have, we don't do a lot of college. Um, the colleges that we have started have tended to liberalize. Goshen College in in Goshen, Northern Indiana, was originally a Mennonite university, uh, Mennonite college, and then, um, but has pretty well liberalized since. And you wouldn't really know unless you looked in the archives that it has a Mennonite beginning. Um, and so, for the most part, we're high school educated, not much beyond that. But a lot of our conservative groups. Uh, have these Bible schools, which are six to 15 week, well, three to 15 week um, times of, of intensive Bible study. Um, the, the school here has about 60 students through the spring, typically. And it's, you know, issues um, working through a book of the Bible or thinking of um, there are a couple of theology classes. There's an apologetics class, um, you know, living in community. What does it look like to be a church? Uh, a lot of different classes along those lines. And so it, it's kind of our uh, our substitute for seminary or something like that. Um, and some people come for six weeks. Um, I was here a total of, I think, 40 or 50 weeks um, of different times as a student. Um, and that was very formative for me. Um, and then uh, the church here has a pastoral apprenticeship program. So again, our... The way the Anabaptists do things, we're, we tend to be hands-on kinds of people um, and a little bit suspect of education, which is not always healthy, um, often isn't healthy. But, and so rather than a conventional seminary where you go and get pastoral training and then um, begin working in a church, um, our ministry is mostly called from the congregation. Um, but there is a need for training. So to meet that need, the church here has a pastoral apprenticeship program that is an opportunity for young men or older men to come in and walk alongside uh, a biblically um, directed pastoral team and experience church ministry firsthand. So I was a part of that for about three years, and then I was what we call youth shepherd, youth pastor for about three years. And uh, since then, I'm not involved in either of those, but I'm as involved as I can be in the church in um, discipling and encouraging others and in growing myself. I've got plenty of work to do myself. Um, and so in terms of just stabilizing personally, um, probably the biggest two factors were um, many opportunities to study scripture, to teach and preach and write Um and then just the study diet, we're committed to expositional preaching, and I can pretty much depend on getting a good meal when I show up Sunday morning um, from the Word of God. And uh, and there are very few sermons that I would that I could put my finger on as you know this was life changing. But that continued diet has been very helpful for me in thinking Christianly um, and loving Christ more and learning more of what it means to serve Him. Yeah. Um, and then as far as ways that um, your church tradition is different, um, mm-hmm. is there anything else as far as either practice or, you know, like community or um, in particular uh, beliefs and so forth? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
probably, well, there are a couple things that would stand out. Probably the thing that's most immediately visible is our women wear the devotional covering um, based on 1 Corinthians 11 and on the church tradition. Um, and I, I don't mean that critically at all, but uh, through most of church history, the women wore the devotional covering. Uh, hmm. Calvin actually would have made that an, an issue uh, for being involved in his church. If I understand correctly, I haven't read that directly, but I've heard that. And I Luther didn't know that. Same. I never, I yeah. never thought and of actually that. there's a really interesting video of RC Sproul saying um, there's no exegetical reason that first Corinthians 11 doesn't mean what it appears to mean. Um, hmm. So back to our earlier conversation, I would say that's, that's probably a tertiary issue or maybe a secondary issue, depending on whether or not <clears throat> someone understands it to be the clear teaching of scripture or not, if they've come to an understanding that the Bible does say it and they refuse to submit, then there's an issue there. Um, and as much as they believe themselves to be faithful to scripture, then I'm not going to question that. Um, and I wouldn't personally, that's not as big of a deal as it is for many others in the conservative sphere um, who would, who would put a lot of emphasis on that Um and I would say, yes, it's clearly taught in Scripture, but there are other things that are more clearly taught in Scripture, um, especially doctrines of the gospel. Um, so there's that practice. Um, we are non-resistant, which is not the same as pacifism. I don't know if you're familiar with that discussion at all. Uh, pacifism mm -hmm. essentially says war shouldn't happen. Um, that's not the non-resistant position. The non-resistant position, which is the historical Anabaptist position, uh, coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, do not resist the one who does evil to you um, and love your enemies and so forth. Um, but would hold, for example, Romans 13, the government does not bear the sword in vain and would say there is a function. So the, the pacifist essentially says um, war shouldn't happen. Uh, the you know, <coughs> capital punishment is wrong and all of those things. Um, Non-resistant position would be more nuanced where the government does bear the sword, but we would say it's not our place to be in that position of bearing the sword. The, the Christian lives um, as an exile. And so we should not be entangled in worldly affairs that has gotten taken too far um, where we totally cut ourselves off from the world. And that's not always healthy, um, but we would be uh, of the conviction that it's wrong for a Christian to kill another human, um, rather kill than be killed, um, is, is kind of the, the principle and where it's thought through well, doctrinally, um, we would pattern that after Christ's example who loved his enemies. And while we were his enemies, he died for us. And so rather die for our enemies. That's, that's the basic line. I don't really want to get in the full conversation here. Um, sure. But I mean, because I understand uh, you're Baptist, is that right? That's right. And so the just war uh, approach, which I can see the reasoning for that. Um, I'm not necessarily there, but uh, where I think just war would essentially say it's okay to take up arms um, to defend the innocent ones. Um, better better kill an enemy than allow innocent ones to be harmed. And there's a certain logic to that. Um, <clears throat> it just, the weight of scripture, in my opinion, seems to be more toward the other. Um, rather, rather 
give your life than have it be taken or rather, rather give your life than take somebody else's. Um, mm-hmm. So as far as doctrines, that would be another one. Um, if you go in some circles, a particular standard of dress is maintained. Um, so men will only wear um, maybe button down shirts. There might be certain patterns that are never worn. Um, and same thing with the women, there might be a certain style of, of dress that they wear, um, in an attempt to not conform to the world. Um, and it can be healthy. It can also turn into an occasion for pride that hear all the things we're doing that make us better people. Um, and it's something that I think we need to continue to deal with within our circles of being biblically humble and not saying, you know, here are all the ways we're better Christians than everybody else. Because there are things that on the other side, we, uh, we aren't being faithful in and we are, you know, prone to give ourselves an excuse for that. Um, more recently, there's been a, a resurgence of, <clears throat> excuse me, of uh, evangelism, sharing the gospel, taking the gospel to people who don't uh, know Christ. But historically, that has not been done very well. And so... Uh, some of those commands I think we can work on uh, being a little more obedient to. So So are are Midianites um, scattered throughout pretty well, or do you have to kind of like uh, go live at a particular location because it's more concentrated in a community and and so forth? Um, Yeah. Another emphasis of the Mennonites would be community. Um, and so you're not going to find very many who are lone rangers. Um, but there are a lot of little communities scattered through the U.S. Um, there are several places where there are a lot of Anabaptists, you know, in, in one pile. Um, so very community focused and that being church community and family. Uh, the Amish tend to be more localized in terms of living right together and doing life together. Um, and they do a lot of practical things to care for each other um, in that way. And it, it makes it hard to leave because there's so many benefits baked into the community. Um, and there are Bible-based, Bible-minded Amish communities, um, not the rule. They're definitely the exception. But uh, So, for example, Goshen, where I grew up, that area is heavily populated. Also, Lancaster, which is where my dad was born, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, and Holmes County and Plain City in Ohio, and then here in Davis County. Those are kind of the top five hubs where there are a lot of Anabaptists, and that's across the spectrum of um, Amish and what's called Amish Mennonite, which is those who have left the Amish and become more Mennonite. Uh, But the Amish way of thinking is different, and so sometimes those Amish people have a hard time assimilating into a a church that's a strong Mennonite tradition. Um, and then anyway, there, there are a lot of different, uh, kind of sub segments that are familiar to me and probably look all the same to you, um, which is fine. (laughs) Uh, and then there are little pockets scattered. So the community we were at in Missouri was, uh, there's a Mennonite church there, a couple Mennonite churches there and an Amish community there. Um, and uh, I lived out in Colorado for about half a year. My brother's still out there. Um, so once you're, you know, if you're if you're in the group, um, you find out where people are, 
And there are a lot of pockets scattered through the U.S. Um, but yeah, it, it's very, it, it doesn't make sense to be a Mennonite and not be in community because that's a part of how we think and how we live. Um, <laughs> again, sometimes it gets separated from scripture where it becomes this thing. We are Mennonites, therefore we're community people and community actually becomes more important than uh, gospel fidelity. Um, but the scripture does present the church <clears throat> as a an organism that cares for itself and interacts and, you know, doing life together. And so we try to live that way with that emphasis. Mm-hmm. Well, what about you personally? And um, maybe just kind of like your, uh, your life with God and so forth, you know, what do you find satisfying? Do you have any um, r- rituals or practices that are meaningful to you or, um, you know what? How have you how have you grown in your knowledge of God or your the joy you have in God and just you know just anything along those lines? Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned church earlier, and that has been a big part of growth. So most of us live here in Elnora, which is a very small town, I think population 600 or something. Um, there are probably 50 of us from the church who live right here in town. The church, if everybody's there, we'll have 70, 80 on a Sunday morning. Um, we have church every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening and every Wednesday evening. Um, and Sunday morning is, you know, 45, 50 minutes of Sunday school teaching. The sermon is usually 30 to 40 minutes, all of it text focused. Um, and then Sunday evening, probably two Sundays a month, we'll also be preaching. We also have hymn sings um, about once a month, and we'll have some other stuff, either a video or something like that that will mix in. Uh, Wednesday evening prayer meeting is about 20 minutes of reading scripture and then prayer together for the rest of the time. It usually runs about an hour. So a lot of time in the church, um, which has been very helpful for me. Um, and then studying scripture... Um, I've not done well recently with the, you know, the typical pattern of morning devotions. Um, but I do, I'm in scripture a lot for the kinds of things that I'm doing. Um, and I'm always trying to think of it not only doctrinally, but also practically and personally, you know, how does what I'm looking at here change how I think and how I live. Um, and then, uh, also fairly recently I've started journaling my prayers. I find it easier to pray well when I write. Um, and so, you know, that way, and then just living, um, what I would call living a God conscious life. Um, so being aware, um, and and I, I mean that very, very personally and practically, not just like mystically, like God is everywhere. He is everywhere. But the fact that, um, you know, he's, he's available all the time. So it's not, I mean, it's good to do that, you know, find a quiet space and have intentional prayer, but also in the moment. Um, it's not like I have to go through some uh, procedure to prepare for God. Uh, God wants to be involved in my life. And so those minute prayers through the day. Um, so an example of that would be Monday when I was working on a podcast that needed to come out Tuesday morning. Uh, and it was Monday evening and I was starting to feel the pressure of this needs to get done or I'm going to be, I'm going to miss my deadline. 
and uh, and just taking five minutes to write that out for God. And and you know, I'm I'm stressed about this, and I'm not in a place where this is going to be you know good for me or for anybody. And asking for His grace in that uh, to be able to think well and prepare well and and do it in a way that's hopefully helpful for his people. So um, I, I don't have a lot in the sense of this is a rhythm I follow every day. Um, but I try to, in, in all of my life, when I have a need to take that thing to God and ask for his grace. Um, and something that's been encouraging for me recently, there are a lot of things that God says he will do that are not um, conditional <laughs> in the sense of, of, uh, you know, on the one hand you have not because you ask not, we are to pray, we're to cast our cares on God and so forth. But on the other hand, you know, I, as a father for my children, I have three boys. Um, I, there are many things I do for their benefit that they're not asking me to do, but because I love them, I'm taking care of them and I'm going to do those things. And I think God's the same way toward us. And I know there are things that in scripture that are just, this is what God will do. Um, and so learning to um, accept that and enjoy that, that God is working for me all the time, uh, even when I'm not exactly sure what it is I need or what I need to pray. Um, and that's been very encouraging for me. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure exactly where, um, somewhere, um, Paul talks about joy in believing. It might be, uh, end of Romans. I think it is. Yeah, I think so. But so I want to ask you about your confidence in, you know, the, the truth and faithfulness of the Christian, um, faith, because there is joy in believing. And sometimes when I feel like, um, like, you know, everything seems so solid. It just all makes so much sense. You know, there is like joy in that. And then, but then it, something comes along like here recently. Um, I felt like that at the beginning of the day, but then by the afternoon, you know, I was just puzzling over the problem of evil and um and thinking you know it just doesn't and there's a lot of it <laughs> yeah and and how that um you know can kind of uh be an objection against you know the reality of uh, a loving god and loving and powerful mm-hmm. god and so forth um and um so i'm not sure if like just intellectually trying to get to some point is really the the best way of just being shored up in confidence and having mm-hmm. joy in believing joy and trusting, or if it could be more practice focused. Um, I've been uh, considering uh, Psalm 15 recently, like who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill. And then it has all these uh, practices of how you are toward your neighbor, you know, who has no mm-hmm. slander, you know, or does no evil to their friends or takes, doesn't take up a reproach against their neighbor and so forth. So maybe, um, you know, being close to God has more to do with, you know, how we practice and so forth. But, you know, for you, um, what is your source of confidence and, um, you know, that this, that you're on something that's faithful and true, um, and so forth. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm another thing I've been working through recently is the question of how do you feel well? Um, you know, what are biblical emotions? Being made in God's image means being made as uh, people who feel. And um, but I'm not naturally a feeler. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm trying to learn how to feel, um, how to let myself. So what it looks like typically is when, um, when I'm feeling a certain way and don't want to, I just shut down. Um, and that's, that's often unhealthy. Um, so learning to be okay with some of that experience. I, I think God sent a couple things our way that's helped to break me down that way um, in, his, in his grace. Um, you know, th- things that were beyond what I could control and just suppress. Um, one of those was a year and a half ago, we had a miscarriage and uh, we were very excited and we'd had two boys already and no complications, had no expectations that anything was going to go differently than it always had. And then uh, at about 12 weeks, my wife miscarried and that was very hard. Um, you know, asking the, the why questions, but also um, I think it was actually harder because we had two and I knew you know, all, all the good things that are a part of being a dad and um, all the nevers, you know, I'm never uh, the, the afternoon after it happened, I'm playing with our uh, then one year old boy and realizing I'm never going to get this experience with the child we lost. Um, and being okay with that in, in the sense of allowing myself to grieve for the things that I wanted that were lost. And then just three months ago, I had a, a wood shop that we built some small furniture in and had a wood stove in there and it got away from me and the shop burned down. Um, and uh, so those unexpected things that pushed me back into the, okay, when everything's going my way and I feel like I'm in control, then things are good. And then when something happens that's out of control, it reminds me that I'm a very dependent person um, mm. and, and trying to go to God for that. Um, and, uh, in, in terms of, you know, just developing personal confidence in God, um, a lot of it is trying to answer my questions in scripture. Um, so the first thing is just being willing to ask the questions, um, you know, the questions that are hard to ask, like, is God really good? Is God really in control? It, it, you know, is sin as bad as it seems to be? Is grace as good as it seems to be um and trying to answer those through scripture um we've been teaching through gospel of john recently in sunday school and uh seeing christ's care for those who um who are hurting like the lame man and the blind man and christ goes out of his way to find them and to minister grace to them um his compassion in that sense um while on the other hand, you know, clearing the temple <laughs> and uh, the righteousness of Christ, but seeing that and and just the whole idea of Christ coming to earth um, in order to redeem me from my sin and that he wants to. And uh, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but that's you know, kind of what I would think along those lines. Um, my confidence is, uh, is not in... Uh, in the fact that I have things figured out, which I don't, um, I have some ideas of some things, uh, but I'm, 
my faith is not in my theology. My faith is in Christ. Um, and uh, trying to grow in that. Yeah. Um, this is kind of like odd and out of, just off topic a little bit. But um, so in my church, um, it's rather reformed. You know, most people, um, I think, are like uh, – kind of like follow the five points of Calvinism and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Is that, do you all hold that in um, common or like, do you all, or is that something that's not a part of your doctrinal tradition? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, in, in terms of tradition, so as I alluded to earlier, a lot of the early Anabaptists got killed before they got chance to write much down. So there's mm -hmm. not a strong, theological tradition in the sense of a codified, you know, this is what we believe. Mm -hmm. um, the, the history would be mostly Arminian, um, at times better or worse. Um, I, I did a study on Arminius himself, um, and I would, I would mainly agree with Arminius, but he is often under, uh, misunderstood because, mm -hmm. and this is a bigger conversation, I don't want to get stuck in this necessarily, but um, Arminius came along after Calvin. They were not really contemporaries. He was born right around the end of Calvin's life. And I think he's rightly understood as trying to correct some of the extremes from those who were following Calvin. Um, if you read Arminius, Arminius actually has a better definition of depravity than Calvin does. Uh, in my opinion, a stronger definition. He says that man, uh, apart from grace is not able to think, will, or do anything truly good, which I, I can't think of a better way of describing sin nature having to do with our thoughts and our desires and our actions, um, mm -hmm. not producing anything that's considered righteousness by God. Um, he would have affirmed that apart from grace, no one can be saved, uh, both in the sense of the offer of the gospel, but also God's grace personally. Um, and so he left, he, he didn't necessarily come down hard on, uh, you know, God's grace can be resisted. His view is more, I'm not sure <laughs> uh, if it's irresistible or can be resisted. Um, mm -hmm. Personally, I would generally align with a lot of the ideas of Calvinism. Um, I would begin to separate myself when I think the system is um, overpowering scripture. Um, but again, general agreement there. Um, but Arminius, I think, would have been trying to deal with some of those same extremes. I don't know if you're aware of like superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. Um, superlapsarianism is God decreed to save, therefore he decreed that evil would happen so that he could save, um, which then makes God the author, author of evil. Infralapsarianism, which is still Calvinistic, says that God decreed to save, and knowing that evil would happen, he decreed to do something about it, but he's not the cause of evil. Um, and Arminius would have been interacting mostly with the superlapsarians who were saying God is the author of evil. Um, and he would have said no. Um, anyway, that, that's a bigger conversation. But if you study Arminius, and I wrote uh, about six articles called What Did Arminius Believe About Salvation? That would give you a good idea of what I, uh, what I believe about that. And what I would take away from him, those are available on my blog, um, theologicaltouchpoints.com. 
Um, so th- that's kind of personally, and our church here would be more or less there, but our church is an oddity. <laughs> even in our, uh, even in BMA, which is our immediate church affiliation and in the broader uh, Anabaptist spheres. So just to throw some labels on things, most of our people would consider themselves to be Arminian, but the Arminianism that exists is more Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, if those labels make sense to you. Um, and so it's, it's thought to be Arminian, but it's actually very human centered. Um, you mean in your own local church right there? Uh, not so much a local church, but the organization we're involved in, which has, I'm not sure how many churches, um, that the summer conference, which is for everybody is usually attended by 1200, but that's, that may represent, uh, maybe 20% of the population of the churches, um, so I would be mostly in agreement with my own church on these things and with the, the ministry and as much as the members of the congregation understand those issues, which generally they do fairly well. Um, but we would be we would be seen by our own people outside of this church as being fairly reformed. Um, actually, if you go review, if you go look at the reviews of my podcast, on Apple Podcasts, you'll see a couple reviews that say, this guy's reformed, this is not Anabaptism. Um, my argument would be uh, the Anabaptists were Biblicists, and that's my goal. Um, and very early on would have been uh, very comfortable with the early reformers, theologically. It's a difference of following through and applications. Um, so I don't think I would be uncomfortable at your church. Uh mm-hmm but a number of our people probably would be um, and maybe, maybe offended at what I just said (laughs) that I wouldn't. Um, So, but the bigger issue in my opinion, it's not so much which system do you align with is though that's an important discussion um, is, you know, is your approach to life, is your theology God centered or man centered? Um, and a God-centered theology, which emphasizes grace as being God's provision. It's a gift of God. Um, God's sovereignty, being able to exercise his rule over the world. Um, you know, God's grace working in the hearts of those who believe. Um, I mean, Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him. Um, and that's a statement. This may be surprising to some people, but that's a statement Arminius would have agreed with that no one can come to the father unless the father has sent me draws him. His question was, you know, can a person resist that grace or is it going to accomplish its purpose? Um, and I have some ideas about that. Um, and he did too, but he just wasn't, he wasn't quite willing to come down as absolutely every time grace accomplishes, um, which obviously does something to your doctrine of election and, and so forth. Um, that's something I'm still thinking about still still working out uh, exactly what I would think about that. But does that well, answer your question? It does, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Julian. It's been really good. Um, is there anything you want to leave off with? Um, any way f- for people to follow you or, or just anything along those lines? Um, oh, yeah. If you're interested, uh, we I – I speak from an Anabaptist perspective, of course, from a Mennonite perspective – um, but I try to be Bible centered as well as I can. Um, 
So I'm in the middle of the series on justification. Uh, just did the sixth. I'll probably have a couple more. Um, and along the lines dealing with why we need to be justified and looking at sin. Um, dealt with issues such as the canon of scripture about a year ago. Did a series on that. Um, comes out every other week. And uh, some of the issues are not going to be interesting because uh, they're kind of intramural. Um so they, as far as they're relevant for our people, but may not be relevant for those who aren't in the Anabaptist sphere or things that, at least from my perspective, are probably a given for a lot of your people are things that we're really dealing with. Like justification is is an issue um, that is not well understood. And we have often practically have kind of a synergistic approach. I do the best I can and trust God to make up the difference. That's what grace means. And that's obviously not what the Bible teaches. Um, <clears throat> so if you're looking for Bible centered teaching, that's what we try to do. Um, I'm still a young guy, so I've got some learning to do and some growing to do. Um, but yeah. And, and then as far as writing, um, theological um, everything I put in the sword and trumpet also goes on there. Um, so there's a lot of stuff on there on the nature of scripture. Um, and then, we just were wrapping up a series on Calvinism and Arminianism that went, went about 10, 11 articles. Um, that's all on there. Um, and the, the articles I mentioned about Arminius. And so it, it's all in the theological vein. Um, the longer article I wrote on hell, it's about 10,000 words, is also on there. Um, if, you, if, if anything that we talked about here is uh, interesting to your listeners, they can go there and find some more out about it. All right. Well, thanks, Julian. Appreciate being, you being a guest and I appreciate your work as well. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed it.